Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is High Strangeness UFOs and the Afterlife. My guest is Nick Cook, who is the author of 20 fiction and nonfiction titles, including The Hunt for Zero Point Inside the Classified World of Anti Gravity Technology, as well as a popular parapsychological thriller, The Grid. He is the former aviation editor of Jane's Defense Weekly. This interview was recorded in a hotel room in Las Vegas where the two of us were attending the Bigelow Institute of Consciousness Studies awards ceremony for their essay competition. And now I'll switch over to that video. Welcome, Nick. Why don't we start with the story of your grandmother's death? My parents divorced when, when I was five. And my sister and I moved in to live with my grandparents, who lived in a sort of quite a large, rambling country house in the southeast of England. <clears throat> and about Halfway through the time we were there, so we were there for about sort of three years, so maybe an hour, a year and a half into uh, our, our living with my grandparents, my grandmother sadly died. And she was uh, American, so she sort of did the reverse thing. She came over to England um, and married my grandfather. Uh, quite a sort of stiff upper lip family not used to discussing feelings, but my grandmother was a very sort of passionate, you know, as you'd expect from um, my American cousins, passionate and, and sort of hot-blooded. And she was also actually interested in the paranormal. So maybe a couple of days after she died, my father came back to console my grandfather at the house. Now, uh, there had been some rather strange goings-on since my grandmother had died. She used to go up to the attic because she couldn't sleep. She was an insomniac, and she would sweep out the attic. And when she'd been alive, you could hear the clack, clack, clack of her broom um, working against pieces of furniture and the sideboard in the attic. And my father was awoken by this one night to hear this going on. But that wasn't the strangest thing. The strangest thing was he and my grandfather were having a discussion about my grandmother's will and they disagreed on a point and at that moment there was a lamp between them heavy victorian lamp that lifted up did a bit of a tilt and a wobble and then plonked very loudly back down on the table between them again now obviously i was only i don't know six or seven or something when this happened so i i, I didn't know anything about it at the time but my father, who was an engineer and quite a rational person, told the family. This sort of got handed down in family law uh, afterwards, and including to my sister and me. And you know, it's when you get testimony like that from someone you know and trust, as I obviously did with my dad, 
who was intensely curious about this incident. I mean, he was obviously very upset at the time that his mother had died, but he always wanted to know how that lamp had got to pick up in the way that it did, how energy had been transferred from somewhere to that lamp, um, and the sort of the whole consciousness aspect of it, he kind of put to one side. But that was really one of those sort of inciting moments in my life when I thought, well, there's got to be an awful lot more to our existence than is merely set out by sort of our 3D, four-dimensional physics. Um, so, yeah, that was the story of my grandfather, my grandmother and the lamp. There were other events in your family as well. Definitely, uh, there were. Um, I mean, more recently, my uh, my mother-in-law, um, who died in 2014, we all, there were uh, maybe seven or eight of us from her extended family who attended um, her while she was dying, including my wife. Um, and uh, my wife was holding her mum's hand. And at the precise moment that my mother-in-law died, uh, my wife, instead of uh, the reaction that obviously I anticipated, which was that she would be extremely um, upset and distressed at this moment, as anyone would be, um, she stood up and said, announced to everyone in the room that all is all is well. And we were all a bit, well, everyone was shocked from what was happening in the room anyway. Um, but I was stunned. I mean, I thought, why are you saying this? Because your mum, your you know, dear beloved mum, has just this second passed away, and yet you're telling the room that all is well. And I suppose maybe an hour or two later when we were sitting down and I asked my wife about this, I said, why did you say this? And she said to me, weren't you there as well? And I went, where? And she went, well, in that space where uh, time stopped, but it stretched infinitely. I was connected to everything. I knew everything. This place was more real than real. And it was imbued with a feeling that I can only describe, describe as all-encompassing, joyous love. And I thought, well, what is this thing that she's describing? Um, I came from a very nuts and bolts background. I'm a technology journalist, but I'm a curious person. And I wanted to know how this person, whom I trusted, obviously, intimately, we'd been married at that point, maybe 25 years. Um, and I wanted to know what she was talking about. And when I, But when I Googled this thing, um, I realized that what she was describing was something called a shared death experience. And that was sort of one of the, I suppose it was actually the primary inciting thing that made me want to go and research consciousness because I had to try and rationalize what my wife had discovered. And in a sense, that also linked back to my grandmother's experience, you know, this experience of, that my dad had told me about, um, about my grandmother and the lamp. So those two things combined really set me off on this path and this journey. I gather that at the same time you were beginning to explore consciousness, you had already had some exposure to the UFO field. 
for some 15 odd years, I had been the aerospace editor of a publication called Jane's Defense Weekly, uh, which is a sort of, it's a military affairs journal. It's bought by professionals in the field, in the defense field, in the intelligence community field as well. It's a really serious publication. And I enjoyed writing for it immensely because it got me all over the world. Uh, it got me to meet some very interesting people and to pursue my curiosity about, you know, things sort of um, interesting technologically, but also kind of secret things too. So uh, during some of the early years that I was involved in the job, I was particularly involved in uncovering uh, for the magazine um, stories about very secret defense projects, particularly aerospace projects that were going on in the U.S., um, where most, if not all, of the really interesting technology was to be had, at least the cutting-edge technology. Um, some of this technology, particularly to do with technologies like stealth, you know, were highly secret, but also um, so shrouded in secrecy that some of the things that people said they saw in the skies, particularly in the desert southwest, um, were often mistaken for UFOs. So... In that sense, my nuts and bolts rationalist job in this very serious publication started to cross over into the UFO domain. But I was very keen to separate out the stuff that you could explain by technology, science, and engineering with the stuff that couldn't be explained in that way. And I wrote a book um, about this called The Hunt for Zero Point, which was my attempt to uh, segregate out the stuff that you could explain by exotic technology. And that, you know, might, I speculated, be to do with a breakthrough in propulsion physics. So perhaps some new esoteric form of energy and propulsion, which would look an awful lot like a UFO if you were to build one here on Earth. Um, and I think I sort of did that, at least to my curiosity and satisfaction. I was able to uh, look at terrestrial technology and ask the question, are, are what people commonly say are UFOs, could any of that stuff have been built here on Earth in great secrecy? And I think, unquestionably, some of it could have been. But to my mind, a, there was a significant proportion of sightings that could not be explained by anything that I would remotely describe as, quotes rational. And that always left me intrigued, but I had to sort of professionally put it to one side until the U.S. Navy comes out through the New York Times, which had a big story in 2017 about how the U.S. Navy had been encountering a plethora of UFOs, um, uh, off the west coast and the east coast of the U.S., encountered amongst its um, carrier battle groups. And these sightings were so well documented and so strange that it sort of emboldened me to go, look, you know, uh, this stuff really needs to be acknowledged and talked about now. And I felt confident enough post-2017 to really get my teeth into the subject in a way that I had not before.
Based on your essay in the Bigelow Institute competition, you see a relationship between survival after death and these mysterious UFO sightings and a wide spectrum of other phenomena. If I could come at it the other way uh, or another way, which is to go, you know, I spent a long time looking at exotic technology, nuts and bolts technology, and, um, you know, metaphorically giving that a really good kick, you know, kicking the tires of it. And I realized that when I'd done that, I could explain the stuff that had been built on Earth unquestionably. But that, that, that other category of sightings, which defied a rational explanation, needed another approach, in my opinion. It, it couldn't be explained or analyzed critically by looking at it from a sort of nuts and bolts perspective. And you're referring to the reports of the Navy that were released in 2017? You don't believe that there's a mechanical explanation for those sightings? Well, uh, I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit here because I think there, there are both. Mm -hmm. I think the phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon, is, uh, it, it, in a sense, it gets to the heart of my essay. Because what I'm talking about in the essay is what I call an interface where our consciousness interacts with a wider consciousness. And in this interface, a lot of interesting, unexplained stuff happens. Um, I think it just so happens that uh, consciousness, the survival of our consciousness post-material death um, manifests on this interface. But I think a range of other phenomena do as well. I mean, there's the near-death experience, there is the out-of-body experience, there's remote viewing. But in terms of the UFO phenomenon, I think that also resides somewhere on this interface in that at times the phenomenon takes on a physical aspect and, there are, and, and, and when it takes on that attribute, you could, again, metaphorically pick up a brick throw it against that UFO, and that brick is going to go clang, because in that moment, that UFO is real. But there is another aspect to the UFO phenomenon, which is um, more metaphysical and has, as others have documented, um, psychic qualities to it. And there is so much high strangeness around the phenomenon when it is in that state that it then takes on another attribute this non-physical attribute. And so many people have tried to analyze the UFO phenomenon from the nuts and bolts side. I thought the only way that I felt I could make any headway myself was to come at it from the other direction, which was from this metaphysical consciousness-related um, aspect, wherein the appearance of other phenomena alongside the uh, the UFO itself, to wit, perhaps poltergeist phenomena, to wit, perhaps um, instances of uh, psychokinesis, uh, telepathy, uh, even uh, strange as it may sound, you know, crypto the appearance of cryptozoological creatures alongside these reported phenomena. All of that seems to uh, reside on this spectrum. And so uh, that's the direction that I wanted to take a look at it from. 
out of the blue at some point, you received a grant from a billionaire to begin to explore this area. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary the way these uh, things work because um, I, after my wife's uh, shared death experience with her mum, uh, I wanted to um, get my teeth into the whole consciousness field. But it wasn't my field. So sort of professionally, I had no excuse at all to go off and investigate it. Um, you know, we've all got to put bread on the table and my uh, profession uh, lay elsewhere. But in addition to being a, a non-fiction writer, I occasionally dip into the world of fiction and I write thrillers. Um, I felt that having done a bit of background research on what happened to my wife and her mother in law, my mother in law, her mum, this, this shared death phenomenon, um, I, I put some of that research into this thriller, a book that came out in 2019 called uh, The Grid, which deals with this, this aspect. Um, but I became so intrigued by it still that I wanted to continue that research, but I had no means legitimately uh, to pursue it professionally. But uh, I, I, I expressed this ambition through a, um, a little sort of aphorism mantra that I wrote on my wall at the beginning of 2019, which was, I said, I would like to uh, this is setting a sort of goal for the next year or, or the year ahead. I would like to uh, work with the world's leading um, researchers in the consciousness field um, and left it at that. I had no means by which to accomplish this or achieve it because it was so outside the field that I had been working in up to that point. But then, lo and behold, I get this grant from um, a, a, uh, a philanthropic um, uh, individual who I met, and he said, uh, I would like to help. In fact, we'd never discussed what my interests were, but somehow he intuited that what I was interested in was this consciousness field and wanted to put some money towards helping my research it. And that's happened. And that, that is what happened. I got this grant from him to pursue the subject of consciousness for the next two years, which ultimately gave me the research material that I put into the Bix essay. I know, for example, along the way, you met my good friend Gail Heisen, who has been a guest on this channel several times. She's a remarkable individual who recommended to me that we should get together. She thought the world of you. Well, I think the world of Gail. Um, she, she is, uh, Gail, is, as you know, Jeff, is, she's a, a shaman. Um, she, again, shamanism was something way outside my uh, knowledge base. Um, but when I was researching the consciousness field, I was particularly interested to approach the, uh, the, the, the field of consciousness from a sort of omnidirectional uh, um, aspect. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to get in touch with experiences in multidisciplinary realms. So you know, remote viewing, 
near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, uh, shamans, um, channelers, you know, the plethora. And uh, through talking to each of them, I wanted to see whether there were, there were any shared characteristics of their experience that might inform the consciousness field as a whole, for me. Um, <laughs> I had no idea how to begin approaching a shaman. I didn't know any. We, we don't have too many um, who live around us in, or lived around us at the time in southwest London. So I approached Dean Radin uh, because I had a, 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 a mutual, we have a mutual friend. And he put me in touch with a range of experiences, uh, including Gail Heisen. And uh, so through Dean, and, and because it, it came through Dean, whose you know, reputation in this field is stellar, I knew that in a sense, he'd already done the due diligence on these people. Um, I didn't need to check them out to know whether they were reliable or kosher or, you know, or any of that stuff. He, Dean had already done that. Um, and that was how I met Gail. And she was able to tell me, you know, remarkable things about how she works and her own experiences of shamanism. And uh, so, yeah, uh, thanks to Dean. You found some common elements in these diverse areas. Some people might think that shamanism, for example, is completely separate from UFOs. To, to my satisfaction, anyway, I was able to find a good many common elements between these experiences. Um, you know, who include amongst them, of course, uh, of course, um, those who have experimented with psychedelics. Um, uh, 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 you know, whether it's LSD or DMT or whatever. Um, and what I found, I found two striking, I mean, this, this was a, a non-scientific survey. I didn't, um, uh, I didn't gather the data with the rigor that would be impart, that, that would be approved of in a sort of empirical study, but it, it passed muster for me that there were a number of commonalities amongst all of these experiences, which led to two common things for me that were, I mean, there were a range of common things, but two things stood out when I put, when I cross-referenced the data, one of which was encounters with entities. There were beings, spirit-like beings, entities, I mean, call them what you will, that all of these experiences said they encountered when they were in state, whatever that state was or however they came to be in that state. In Gail's case, it was a shamanistic encounter. But in Eben Alexander's, of course, it was a near-death experience. Um, so that was one interesting point for me. They, they had this common point of reference of uh, encounters with beings whom they felt to be um, uh, 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 consciousnesses in their own right, in that they had uh, 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 their own, if you like, individuality about them and their own individual mode of expression. The second was... Um, a, uh, a, 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 an encounter with what they felt was the came under a different range of names. Source, uh, the source, a source, the source, the creator, the absolute, um, a point of infinite vibration and light 
that I suppose some might call God. Um, and that for me was, those were the two really interesting points that stood out in this omnidirectional sort of survey that I'd done, which uh, told me something deeply numinous about the quality of consciousness, um, but which again allowed me to believe that this is a subject that can and should be explored by mainstream science in a way that mainstream science has not to this point, perhaps. But I, I see signs that it is increasingly engaging in uh, the study of consciousness and a recognition, perhaps, that consciousness is primary and matter secondary. Um, but, you know, we're not there yet, obviously. But I, I, I feel that there are encouraging signs that the flip may be um, on its way. Let's go back to the UFO sightings reported by the military. Did you, in probing those experiences, discover numinous qualities there? If I can take this back to the report that was commissioned on UFOs by the United States Congress yeah. uh, and which appeared um, in uh, June 2021 uh, on the phenomenon. This was delivered by uh, the defense and intelligence community to Congress um, as uh, a sort of, you know, here's what we know about uh, UFO, UFOs or UAP to give them their kind of kosher acronym, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Um, many people were sort of disappointed by this report because they said it didn't go far enough to explain what the US defense and intelligence communities knew about UFOs. I happen to think it was a, a real breakthrough because it was a real acknowledgement that there is a phenomenon here that needs to be taken seriously. Um, in amongst the sort of the, the data in a very slim down, I think it's a seven page unclassified version of the report, it, it, it pays heed to a small section of sightings that totally defies explanation. Now, that is the portion that everyone is interested in. It's, you know, it's not the bit that you can um, uh, possibly uh, analyze and dismiss as top secret technology that may be developed by the Russians or the Chinese or whatever. I mean, what people really want to know about is that subset of data that really defies explanation. And with that subset, there is no doubt that uh, there are that there, there are a range of strange phenomena that accompany the UFO itself, and I think it's because that range of phenomena is so strange. You know, um, the researcher Jacques Vallée, whose work is, I think, exemplary in um, detailing what that just the sort of the strangeness of that phenomena, uh, something in fact he dubbed high strangeness. Um, because that phenomena is so off-putting to people who just want to come up with an answer to the technology of UFOs, they have dismissed it. And they've only analyzed the UFO as a nuts and bolts phenomenon itself. And I think that's wrong. I, I think because, you know, as Jacques Vallée and others have, have documented, unfortunately, for those who want to... Um, sort of analyze this rationally and critically, uh, it, it is accompanied by this uh, 
stuff that defies an explanation. And that's very off-putting to people who want to be taken seriously on UFOs as a, well, as perhaps, you know, the defense and intelligence communities would want to analyze it in the same way that they would analyze a threat from a threat nation. Um, and it can't be done like that, unfortunately. Can you give an example of high strangeness? Well, okay. Uh, I'm trying to think of a specific uh, UFO case example. I mean, there are so many of them. One that was included in the government report? Well, the, 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 the government report in the unclassified version was so watered down that it, it, all it talked about was a handful of sightings since 2004 that it had looked at. Um, and of course, as anyone who's ever done any research in the field knows, um, the phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon, owes its existence. I mean, it goes way back, but certainly in the modern era, you could say that it's been charted since 1947, mm -hmm. when the, you know, the, the, the Kenneth Arnold first sighted what he described as flying objects that looked like saucers skipping over the surface of a pond, which gave rise to the, uh, the, 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 the description flying saucer. Um, so since that era, there have been so many sightings. But in the report that was given to Congress, the intelligence community and the defense community said, we're only going to look back to, 2000, to 2004 and analyze data since 2004 sort of suggesting that that was the only data that was worth looking at. Mm. But actually, what that managed to do was obscure the long trail of sightings history going back to 1947, in which there is so much good data, including some pretty scary stuff, ostensibly, which is about how UFOs have consistently interfered with uh, the nuclear deterrent, um, which uh, is extremely well documented and has been for a very long time. Um, and I suspect probably that is why it has been left out, because you do not want to acknowledge, if you are in charge of the nation, any national defense, that there are things in your sky which defy rational explanation, uh, at least explanation uh, to your rational mind. It seems that nuts and bolts machines, let's say, that come from another world somewhere might well be interested in our nuclear developments here. Indeed. And I think that that is a sort of part of this all in that that is one way of looking at it, that you have to, if you are charged with um, analysis of something that is appearing in your sky, which you can't explain, you have to consider, if this is your job, that it may be a threat. Um, on the other hand, though, of course, it might not be. If, if it is truly esoteric in nature, it may be bound up in all sorts of other things, including, you know, going back to that discussion we were having earlier about, you know, this perceptual interface. If um, if, if, if I am perceiving things in a space that is governed by an aspect of consciousness that is not well understood, 
it is entirely possible that these things, you know, whether they are ghosts uh, uh, um, or UFOs, are appearing on this interface, my perceptual interface, um, as some manifestation of, um, say, perhaps, you know, Jung's collective unconscious. Uh, I mean, Jung himself was very interested in the UFO phenomenon and felt that it was both sort of precognitive and reflective in some way, you know, some perhaps some aspect of, of, of our group mind that is reflected in the way that we perceive things. Um, so, yes, there is a nuts and bolts aspect to it, but at the same time, that doesn't explain every aspect of, of it either. Speaking personally, I have lots of data that I think would link UFO phenomena to life after death, but I'm just curious as to what data might have been revealed by the U.S. government along these lines. I don't think the U.S. government has revealed any data that connects the UFO phenomenon uh, to other aspects of you know, paranormality or, uh, or, or consciousness. Um, precisely for that reason. And I think it is because it is, along with everyone else, it is struggling to make uh, those kinds of connections. And were it to make those connections, I think that in their minds, there would be ridicule attached to it, you know, because you're starting to veer away from something which has a sort of defense aspect to it, which is nuts and bolts, into this esoteric realm wherein you make yourself open to criticism that you are, you know, you've, quotes lost the plot. You're, you're veering into the subject that is, you know, more uh, commonly explored by religion or philosophy or, you know, and that's not the role of defense or the intelligence community, they would say. And, and I think that is why Two, a lack of progress has been made in the analysis and examination by, quotes, defense-type people of this phenomenon. It's because they're, they're looking at it through a very narrow aperture, which is the nuts and bolts aspect of it. Do you think they are hiding information? Well, inevitably, if a government is, is analyzing something that it doesn't understand, it is going to hide stuff because it doesn't want to display its own ignorance. Um, that exposes a vulnerability uh, in a nation's security or in anyone's security. Um, that is, that's, that's a very uncomfortable place to be in if you are charged with national security. So, uh, yes, there is a great deal of secrecy uh, surrounding the subject, but I don't think it's all to do with you know, what many people believe, which is that it's because, you know, the government is hiding away crashed extraterrestrial craft or because it's got aliens in freezers. I think a lot of it is just to hide its own ignorance, actually. I don't know if you're familiar with a book I wrote over 20 years ago, around the same time you were working on the hunt for zero-point energy, which undoubtedly takes you back to Hal Putoff's research. I met Hal Putoff myself in 1976, and he dumped a big file into my lap. He said, please, take it off of my hands. We don't want it here at SRI. It's too controversial. A man who called himself the PK man. 
he could produce UFO sightings at will and did so. And, and who was the PK man? His name was Ted Owens. No, I don't know about that. I, I, if I, it, well, I will get the name of your book, that book <laughs> off you afterwards, because I'd love to read it. Yeah. Um, yes, I did. Obviously, I, 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 I know Hal Putoff. I've met him quite a few times, and we've talked about, well, predominantly about the zero-point energy aspect of he, his research. Uh, we've spoken less about the remote viewing side of his um, career. Uh, but... Um, in all the realms that he's been involved in, uh, yes, there, there, there are some very interesting things. I, I would love to read that. If I may, let me share with you one story because I think it is on point. It is the example that you would need to make this connection clear, I think. He, when I first met him, he had a stack of papers this high. <laughs> of demonstrations he had produced. And I noticed several instances in which he said, I'm going to produce a UFO and you will see it within a certain time and space parameters. And that happened. They were reported in newspapers. And so, I asked him, can you do that for me? It was back in 1976. I had all of Hal Putoff's files at that point. He was so glad to get it out of his office. I was a graduate student then and just beginning my explorations in parapsychology. So, Ted Owen said, yes, I can create three UFO sightings that will occur within a 90-day window within 100 miles of San Francisco. And at one point, he called me up in the middle of this experiment. He was very excited and he said, Jeffrey, I can feel it coming. This is going to be big. This is going to be a sighting that will be seen by hundreds of people. It will be photographed and a picture will be published on the front page of one of your local newspapers. And three days later, that is exactly what happened. Wow. Well, I would love to see that. I, I'm, I'm not aware of that. I'm particularly interested, of course, if Hal handed that uh, data off to you. And I'd love to read about it because that sounds fascinating. And th this, so that, Jeff, is what you're saying is an example of a crossover yeah. between the UFO phenomenon and mind. Yes. How we are able to either project it or reflect it or... Uh, and I agree, there is that crossover. And it's it's taken on a new form now in something which I'm sure you're aware of called CE5, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, wherein experiences invite contact mm -hmm. with the phenomenon. I'm not altogether sure it's a good idea, by the way, in all cases. But anyway, that's what they do. And this often elicits encounters with orbs and UFO-like phenomena uh, wherein the phenomenon appears to these experiences when they call for it. Mm -hmm. So, it is clearly, to my mind, and because that is very well documented, by, way, by the way, it's not, you know, often solo experiences who are calling these things down, but, you know, they are witnessed by multiple people, yeah. that that is, that is the crossover. That is... Another example of how these two apparently separate fields interact. And, and that's the space that I want to look at next.
I'll give you another example. It relates even more directly to the question of survival. Ted Owens, a very interesting man, I've written a book about him called The PK Man. It hasn't sold a lot of copies yet, but I do keep talking about it. It's going to get one more sale now. <laughs> he died in 1987. He was living at the time in Fort Anne, New York, a tiny little town. And he was living in a farmhouse outside of town. He said that he had received messages from the UFOs to rendezvous with him there. He produced, in my research with him, 168 demonstrations of psychokinetic phenomena that he claimed were mediated by his contact with, he, he called them the space intelligences, hyperspace entities who hovered above the earth in an invisible UFO. And he claimed that they had directed him to Fort Ann, New York. That's where he died, incidentally, of sclerosis of the liver. He drank a lot. He, in fact, he was a very heavy drinker. He seemed to produce a lot of psychokinetic phenomena while inebriated. But before he died, he sent me a number of newspaper clippings showing UFOs appearing around Ford and New York and also a letter of testimony from his neighbor who claimed that UFOs were hovering right above his farmhouse. And he died shortly thereafter. Time and again, you hear this kind of story and it, 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 you know, it becomes important. It certainly has become important to me when I've, you know, I've got it from sources that I trust. You know, we, we talked at the beginning of all of this about the importance of, of, of getting information, at least to begin with when you're exploring this subject, from sources that you trust. In my case, it was from my father and from my wife. But in my work as a senior editor at Jane's Defense Weekly, you know, I was introduced to, for example, not only Hal Putoff, but uh, Ingo Swan. And Ingo was, you know, if you like, uh, one of the other godfathers or fathers of remote viewing alongside Hal. Uh, and I had a chance, several chances, in fact, to talk to him about his work, which, as you know, many people know, was funded by the government for a long time. Um, yeah, and, and as a defense journalist myself, I looked for patterns. I, in fact, I followed the Woodward and Bernstein mantra of follow the money a lot. And when you've got 15 plus years of constant funding by the defense and intelligence community into a thing, in this case, remote viewing. You know, that's when I sort of sit up and take notice. So through Hal and through Ingo, uh, and actually even through Uri Geller, who I've also met, um, who again, he invited me to his home after he'd read The Hunt for Zero Point. And uh, he did the spoon bending thing for me, you know, Uri was, again, he was also funded by the CIA to do things. SRI, Stanford Research Institute, uh, analyzed his work. Hal was involved in that. So, you know, these things, they all have a very solid uh, base to them for me. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just, that's the foundational stuff. You know, I, I think if we're going to make progress going forward, we need to look I think it's probably Hal Putoff who describes it as the frontier of the frontier. And, and 
those that will entail exploring aspects of con of consciousness which will be deeply uncomfortable to some areas of science because it will exhibit uh, uh, high strangeness of the kind talked about by Jacques Vallée. It seems as if at least since maybe the early 1950s, there was an official policy of the government to try and debunk these high strangeness reports in order to avoid public panic. Definitely. And, and you know, that has been a part of my work as well. I mean, coming out of uh, the defense journalism realm, um, you know, you do become acutely aware that uh, not all the information that you get is necessarily the truth or correct. Um, you have to employ a very rigorous filter to try and work out what is truth and what isn't, particularly when you're dealing with aspects of national security. So yes, the whole UFO field has been riven with disinformation and as is well documented in the 1950s uh, and 1960s when uh, the CIA, amongst others, was behind a range of new technology that was appearing in the skies, such as the U-2 spy plane um, and the very fast-flying A-12 hypersonic aircraft. Um, that, uh, that, that meant that well, they were aware that the UFO phenomenon was something you could hide this technology behind. And if you mixed up um, a little bit of truth uh, with a whole range of disinformation, you know, you could get some of that stuff to stick. And it was a very useful curtain behind which you could hide real secrets, you know, real technology. So yeah, you, you, you have to be aware of all of this stuff. And I, I think in a way that consciousness itself being a somewhat, being a highly malleable thing, um, is uh, prone to, um, you know, when, when you feed all of this disinformation into this interface that, you know, I've been trying to um, describe and trying to find the words to describe it in my Bix essay as well, um, that interface becomes, in a sense, bent out of shape itself by a range of different inputs. One of those inputs being the human input, which is characterized in this case by uh, misinformation and disinformation from intelligence communities. Nick, where do you think things are going from here? Do you have any sense of the future of this investigation? You know, in my own field, um, so, you know, coming out of that aerospace and defense background, um, recognizing that a huge breakthrough has been made in, in the middle of 2021 with this UAP study that was um, delivered to Congress by the Office of uh, uh, the Defense and Intelligence Community, that um, people are going to sit up and take notice. Sadly, in the defense and intelligence realm, this is now going to be a thing. I regret to have to say that I think there will probably be some form of race to uh, uncover some of the darker aspects of this uh, amongst the uh, great rival bloc powers. So um, China, Russia, 
the United States, um, my own country, the UK, uh, and I think others will be racing to try to understand what all of this means. And sadly, again, I think there will be a, uh, a, 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 a prism, a lens that they are going to look through, which is going to see this in terms of weapons technology um, and advances to be made in the field of uh, intelligence gathering and what have you. I mean, we've, we've seen this in the past, of course, with remote viewing. Remote viewing came out of uh, extraordinary to, to acknowledge in, in many ways, a race between the Soviet Union, as it was then, and the United States to gain a sort of psychic upper hand uh, between themselves. Um, I, I, I'm a little fearful that that race now, triggered by this whole new UFO thing, might uh, be a race to acquire technology that would replicate sort of UFO, UAP type uh, uh, um, platforms is the sort of the uh, vernacular in, in the defense world. Um, uh, I think that that is why it's going to be incredibly important for science to get engaged in this, all of science, not just defense science. Um, this is a phenomenon that deserves to be understood and it deserves to be made as transparent as possible. Because I think the last thing that any of us wants is to see a sort of new, I don't know what you'd even call it, a sort of esoteric arms race in this area. That is not what it is about. I think, you know, my own explorations of this subject, and perhaps dare I say it, your own too, Jeff, uh, it certainly shown me that this is a subject that is is uh, it is not to be suborned by any particular interest groups. You know, consciousness is something that uh, we need to explore this subject for the greater good. Uh, and I think the greater good of humanity, and that is really only going to come through um, uh, transparency and the whole of science engaging in this, because it is so um, elusive that only by a whole whole of science approach to our trying to understand it are we going to make any progress in, you know, chipping away at it. I have a hypothesis I'd like to share with you. I think the universe itself is conscious. Of course, me too. And when you, for example, put out the intention that you wanted to meet with the world leaders of consciousness research and then out of the blue you got a two-year grant to do exactly that, I think it was the universe responding to your intention. Well, thank you. And that is the way, um, funnily enough, I see it as well. Uh, I read uh, and enjoyed hugely in your own Bix essay the discussion about uh, metaphysical realism, uh, the idea that the universe itself is conscious uh, and responsive and alive. I have prodded it enough, <laughs> I hope in a nice way, <laughs> um, but uh, to know that that is true. You put the intention out there, and if the intention, I think, aligns with, 
I don't know. I mean, I, for simplicity's sake, let's call it a greater good uh, that the universe will respond in that sense. Consciousness will respond. And uh, of course that is unexplained. That is so mysterious that it, it can do that. But yet, you know, there are enough instances of it. Um, in your case, in my case, we all know people who have done that and the universe has in some way responded. Um, you know, let's, uh, let's test that uh, in a more widespread way and say, look, if, you know, whole communities can put out that intention. Um, I mean, we are at a perilous point in, um, you know, humanity's evolution. Uh, we're faced with existential threats like climate change. Um, you know, we seem to have regressed, unfortunately, in a sort of national security setting um, to a kind of something that equates to a, a kind of Cold War mentality. Um, so the more that this sort of intention can be put out there, to um, explore consciousness in a positive way, you know, I think hopefully the more the universe will respond uh, in a positive way back. So anyway, that's my hope and uh, 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 dream for the future. Well, Nick Cook, this has been a delightful conversation. It's very exciting for me to have it with someone with your background in the aerospace and defense industries and technology. It adds a whole new layer for me and I think for the viewers of New Thinking Aloud. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me on. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.